just like podcasts, newsletters are a great way to learn more about history. So that's why I created the History Weekly Newsletter to round up all the best history podcast episodes of the week and break them down just for you. And as a little bonus, outline a major historical event that occurred each day that week in history. Consisting of four sections, I first list those major historical events, along with accompanying pictures, of course. Then I list all the history podcast episodes I listened to that week with cover art and links, rank the best three, and finish with a guest recommendation. So if you're looking for a new newsletter to follow and learn even more history, follow the link in the show notes or enter your email at historyweekly.eo.page slash landing. And now, to the show. It's April 18th, 1949, in Dublin, Ireland. The mood is upbeat and positive. Last year, the Republic of Ireland Act was passed, which terminated Ireland's dominion status with Britain. It also declared that their state was a republic, and today the official announcement is to be made by the Tau Siege, John Costello, and it's going to be on Radio Iran, the state-run radio service. The Tau Siege is essentially the Prime Minister for those unfamiliar with the term. So at around 1.30 after lunch, Mr. Costello begins and people all around Ireland tune in on their radios. I am glad to announce that on this day, the 18th of April, 1949, the Republic of Ireland came into being. The announcement marked the end of Ireland's status as a dominion within the British Commonwealth and the country's official declaration of independence as a republic. And with that, Ireland officially gains its independence for good. The road to this day was a long and tedious one though, one that we'll be exploring in today's episode. This is the story of the Easter Rising Rebellion, and you're listening to To Be A Rebel. This is To Be A Rebel, the podcast that takes you through the lives of real rebels throughout history that have defied unjust authority and stood up for themselves and their beliefs, at times costing them their lives or their reputations, and sometimes both. This is the last in our three-part series on the Easter Rising Rebellion. Today, we'll focus on the aftermath of the rebellion and the long-lasting impact it had on Ireland. If you haven't listened to parts one or two yet, I'd recommend doing so now to familiarize yourself with the chain of events. It's Monday, May 1st, 1916 in the city of Dublin. The Irish rebels officially surrendered two days ago on Saturday. General Sir John Maxwell of the British Army has been appointed to restore order in Ireland, and his response has been uncompromising. He starts by having more than 14 leaders of the Rising executed between May 3rd and May 12th. It comes as an unexpected move. As we mentioned in episode 2, the only terms of surrender that Britain offered were unconditional. But the Irish rebels and even many of the ordinary people thought a more rehabilitative punishment would be meted out. So with them being done wrong for trying to compromise with the British, tensions would flare yet again. They were made worse as supplies had dwindled due to the siege and occupations of buildings and sectors throughout Dublin and beyond. 
After the British brought in heavy artillery, many stocks were damaged or left abandoned, so it took a while for farmers to catch up with supply. And of course, the British didn't really offer much either. These deteriorating conditions would leave the Irish with much to desire, and before long, they would start a war of independence. But more on that in a moment. The Irish War of Independence was a fairly quick one, taking place from 1919 to 1921. Unlike the Easter Rising, the rebels did not surrender this time. The three-year conflict mostly ended in a stalemate, so the ensuing treaty was essentially a compromise right down the middle. Known as the Anglo-Irish Treaty, it established the Irish Free State as a self-governing dominion within the British Empire with limited autonomy and provisions for a separate parliament and executive. While the treaty was accepted by some Irish leaders, including Michael Collins, others such as Iman de Valera opposed it. Essentially, it was unionists versus republicans all over again. Unfortunately, it didn't make the future of Ireland any clearer either, and there would still be more obstacles for the country to face over the preceding decades. Let's start first with the Irish Civil War. The feud between Unionists and Republicans only intensified in the aftermath of the Anglo-Irish Treaty. Unionists were mostly in the North, were Protestant, and felt a deeper tie to Britain, hence their stance to remain part of the UK. The rest of the country was majority Catholic, and their stance was pro-independence and favored an Irish Republic of their own. Both sides would form their own paramilitary groups, which would clash regularly. Eventually, a full-scale war erupted, and Britain offered to help the Unionist groups with supplies and resources. This gave them an advantage, and ultimately, the National Army went out. After securing Dublin by early July, they went on the offensive against the anti-treaty strongholds of the South and West, especially the Munster Republic, successfully capturing all urban centers by late August. Having undergone two separate wars due to the likes of Britain now, Ireland would continue to fight for the cause of full independence. Just as paramilitary groups emerged from both sides of the aisle, political parties would spar as well, with Sinn Féin leading the charge. There would be others as well like Fianna Fáil, and eventually the IRA that became so infamous for the bombings late into the 20th century. But these would also become more than just political parties. They were also cultural and a large part of Irish identity. After being frustrated by the lack of results from armed resistance, there was much more manpower and resources dedicated towards political solutions over the years. Would these shifts in priorities pay off? We'll explore that next. It's April 19th, 1949, a day after the announcement of the Proclamation of Independence by the Taussich John Costello on Radio Aydan. Ireland will soon change dramatically. The details of this proclamation acknowledge the adoption of the Constitution of 1937, establishing an independent Irish Republic. Northern Ireland, which makes up about one-sixth of the island, was to be partitioned off and remain part of the UK. Whereas previously, much effort was needed to resist British colonization, and now went toward rebuilding the country and focusing on their own cultural norms and customs. And believe me, there was a lot to address. Aside from transgressions with their neighbors, they had their own garden to water. Religion bred rampant pedophilia among Catholic priests, which scarred many children for life. 
and this type of abuse brought on a perpetual cycle. Ireland would take many years, even decades, to recover not only from British repression, but their own responses to it as well. Looking back to see where Ireland stands now, it's easy to forget all the sacrifices that were made to become sovereign. The Easter Rising Rebellion undoubtedly played a huge role in getting there though. It would serve as a rallying cry for future pro-freedom movements such as Palestine for example too. Now I can confidently say that they've shown us what it means to be a rebel. Thanks for listening. This has been To Be a Rebel. This has been the last in our three-part series on the Easter Rising Rebellion. Today we covered the aftermath of the rebellion and the long-lasting impact it had on Ireland. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love it if you told your friends and family about it and gave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on all our new episodes covering all of history's rebels. Have an idea for a rebel you'd like to see covered? Email me, david at echofox.media to have it considered. A quick note on dramatizations. We can't always know exactly what was said, but these depictions are based on historical research. Hosting and production is done by me, David Los. Editing and sound design by Brianna Reese. Historical research for this episode was helped compiled by me, David Los. Links to all of our sources used and resources for further reading can be found in the show notes along with community and partner notes. We hope that you'll check them out, knowing that supporting them helps support us too. We'll see you next week, and until then, take care. Well, howdy there to be a Rebel fans. I know how much you all love your history. So I thought I'd tell you about another show that I myself enjoy called the Wild West Extravaganza. The host, Josh, he has a real knack and great voice for storytelling. He explores all the rowdy characters, crazy battles, and major events from the American history period known as the Wild Wild West. So that includes Native American tribes and chiefs, cowboys, outlaws, bandits, sheriffs, you name it. And don't worry, they feature plenty of rebels too. And just like me, Josh strives to be as historically accurate as possible, and he's built a large community to hold him accountable to that. So if you want to learn even more about this fascinating part of American history, search for the Wild West Extravaganza wherever you're listening right now, or hit the link in the show notes.